Welcome to From Florida, where we share stories about the people, research and innovations taking place at the University of Florida. I'm your host, Nikki Brown. Our guest today is Carl Van Ness, who has a long history, and that is the perfect word in this case, at the George A. Smathers Libraries, where he has worked in various capacities as an archivist. Carl's current role is the Florida Political Papers Archivist, and he previously served as Head of Archives and Manuscripts, Associate Chair of the Department of Special and Area Studies Collections, and University Archivist, to name just a few of his roles. To say Carl knows a lot about the university, of Florida would quite simply be a huge understatement. After nearly 40 years of service to the university, Carl will be retiring this summer, but he has graciously agreed to join us here today to share a few highlights of his career. Welcome, Carl. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. I uh, don't normally get to talk about what I do uh, as an archivist. Um, by the way, we pronounce it archivist. Oh, yeah, I, no, I knew no, you'd get no, me. No, 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 no. It's okay. It's uh, around the world. It's pronounced differently. And normally, the people ask me questions related to the university's history, so I don't often get the opportunity to talk about my profession. Well, it is wonderful to have you here. You joined UF as a, a project archivist. Did I get that right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, there or archivist. <laughs> archivist <laughs> at the George A. Smathers Libraries in 1984. Could you tell us what attracted you to this position? What was your background? And, and maybe what was your first project? Sure. Uh, I came into this profession surely through um, happenstance. I was a graduate student here. I was working on a master's degree in history, Latin American history, early Cuban history. And I was offered a position in the library, a six-month position to process a collection related to the sugar industry in Cuba. And I had been working on a collection related uh, to, I mean, uh, working on a thesis related to uh, railroad construction in Cuba. So this was kind of a good tie-in. I had no idea I wanted to become an archivist. Uh, and I just love the work. And I just came in every day and was just like this new adventure. You get to open a box that nobody's opened in a hundred years and get to look at what's inside. And it was just fascinating. And from that period on, I was just hooked on, on being an archivist. And I'm not going not gonna to go back to grad school anymore. Uh, although I had to, actually, I had to get a library science degree in order to work in the library. And anyway, I, after doing that initial job, I worked uh, in the university archives for about 60, 16 years. Uh, 16, that's 60, 16 <laughs> years. It seems like 60. Doing a lot of hands-on work, uh, really just uh, working with collections again. And then in 1997, I was appointed university archivist. I served on that uh, role uh, until 2003. Since 2003, I've uh, been pretty much a, um, I'm a call a utility archivist. In baseball, they refer to utility infielders, guys who can play any position in the infield. Well, that's what kind of what I've been doing since 2003. I've been working in a variety with a variety of collections. I'm currently the political papers archivist in the department. I've also worked a lot with audiovisual materials, even though I have no training whatsoever in that. But they needed somebody to do that, so I said, sure, I'll do that. And in 2006, you served as the university historian for U.S. Can you tell us a little bit about that role? Sure. Uh, the position itself has no particular responsibilities, uh, no defined responsibilities, mm -hmm. put it that way. I'm only the second person to serve as university uh, historian. The first was Sam Proctor, who was uh, one of Florida's most uh, significant interpreters of the state's history and culture. 
And I got to work with Sam a lot uh, while he was here, and I got to know his particular style and his approach to being uh, the university historian. And when I became the university historian, I just kind of followed Sam's script, so to speak, although I'm less of a public person than Sam was, although I do a certain amount of uh, speaking for the public. Uh, mostly I'm a, a behind-the-scenes type of person. The primary responsibility of a university historian is to be a question-answerer. I get asked a lot of questions, and I try to answer them as best as I can. Uh, so to give you an example from last week, I got a call from President Fox's office. We get a lot of calls from President Fox's I'd office, as you, as you imagine. And uh, he, uh, President Fox is giving a talk this week, I think it is, to the Fulbright scholars. And so they asked me, do we have anything on the early history of uh, the Fulbright program at the University of Florida? And I said, I don't know, <laughs> but I'll check into that. I have no sense of the history of the Fulbright scholarship program in the United States. So the first thing I had to do was go to the Wikipedia page and see when was the act passed. It was passed in 1946, and shortly thereafter, the program got kicking. Uh, so that would put uh, the beginnings of the Fulbright Scholarship Program during the period of President J. Hillis Miller, who was our fourth president. So I immediately went to Miller's records to see if there was anything there, and there was. There was a little bit there. I also discovered at that point that Miller had appointed Dean Ralph Page, who was the at that time the dean of the uh, College of Arts and Sciences, to serve as the chair of the Fulbright committee. So we also have his papers as well. So I went to those and I found an even much larger folder in the Fulbright program. And between the two, I was able to put together a decent uh, sketch of the early history of the Fulbright program at the University of Florida. So that's typically what I do as university historian, although, as I said, I do other things as well. I have to speak before the public occasionally. I give tours of campus. I have been on one of your tours. You've been it on one of my wonderful. tours. Yes. Oh, thank you. I also do an indoor version of that, uh, where instead of using buildings, I use objects or documents from the uh, from the university archives to, to talk about the same things. But it's a lot easier indoors than outdoors. You don't have to worry about the weather. And uh, I can select whatever I want from the university archives to talk about, whereas with buildings, you're kind of confined. So, but anyway. It sounds like you're a detective almost in some ways, following those leads and piecing things together to really build out a story or, or, or a story of the past. So mm -hmm. not inventing, but bringing it back to life. That's true. That's a lot of what I do is detective work. Yeah. The library is is both home to the archive and, and serves as a museum for the university. What are some of the interesting artifacts that you've got housed there? Okay, well, unlike the university archives itself, the normal records that we keep in the archives, the artifact collection, the museum collection, relates primarily to student life and culture. <clears throat> Whereas the archives is mostly about the administration, the presidents, the provosts, that kind of thing, uh, as well as faculty. But with the artifacts, it's mostly about student life. So there's a lot of things that students used, a lot of things that students wore. A lot of caps, mm -hmm. specifically rat caps, which were the uh, beanies that first-year students were required to wear before World War II and then shortly after the war. We have a lot of posters from musical events, uh, dramatical events, anti-war protests, that kind of thing. We have our famous biscuit which is a biscuit that uh, purports to be a biscuit anyway. We're not, we're not sure. We've never actually tested it to make sure it's a biscuit. But it was uh, mailed by a U University of Florida student in 1913 to a friend in Georgia. And that friend kept it, and eventually it ended up in the archives. So we have the biscuit from the mess hall from 1913. So is this just a normal biscuit? What does it look like? 
it's it looks like a biscuit. <laughs> it's round and it's flat. Uh, it's very hard now. It was actually a, a stamped item. This person put a stamp on the biscuit and put the address of this person on one side. And on the back, it says Mess Hall from 1913. It's purports to be a biscuit and purports to be an actual stamped item, although there is no actual cancellation to the stamp. So a true stamp collector would say it's not authentic because it hasn't tied in to the biscuit. So you'd have to have the stamp or you'd have the postal cancellation on the stamp and the, the biscuit itself to qualify. It's still, it's an amazing thing. Right. And I guess I'm just wondering about what would cause someone to want to mail a biscuit Probably because the quality of the biscuit was so bad. I don't uh, I can only- Or so oh, good. Let's say or, so good. No, yeah, let's say so bad. It says mess hall. <laughs> the status of the, uh, the mess hall was not the greatest thing in the world. Uh, in fact, the, the university was delighted when we finally switched to a cafeteria style. So prior to the 1920s, uh, if you were a student, you ate in common. You know, everybody got served the same meal, which was heavy on the starches, heavy on the breads, and maybe some kind of meat. If you were lucky, maybe a vegetable or two. Uh, and then in, and sometime in 1920, early 1920s, we switched to a cafeteria style where you could actually choose mm. what you wanted to eat. It was, a, it was actually a big event, you know, when it happened. So that was proof of the suffering, I guess. Uh, proof of the suffering, yes. Yeah. Yeah, you could probably throw that biscuit and They probably did, and they probably hurled those biscuits and hurt each other with them. <laughs> My favorite objects uh, in, the, in the museum collection are the sign-out sheets that women who lived in the dormitories had to maintain. So if you were a woman living in a dormitory up until like the mid-1960s, uh, you were required to sign out whenever you left your dormitory and sign back in when you returned. You had a curfew during weekdays. I think it was like 10 p.m. Weekends, it was more like 12, 1 p.m. So, and women were allowed to keep their sign-out sheets if they wanted to, and some women did, and they, some of them ended up in the university archives. And uh, I use them a lot when I talk to students. It, it just kind of provokes a discussion because students today are like, what? Right. Why do women have to do this? What, what, why didn't the men have to do this? And this you know, leads to a discussion about gender roles and the changing roles of women in a university setting. So it's a, it's a great way to start a conversation. It's also just an interesting artifact. And especially relevant now in women's history. Month as well. Oh, yes, thank you. Then I forgot all about that. <laughs> what are some of the reactions of students? You said that they're, they're kind of like, this can't be possible. Why did they have to sign out when men didn't have to? What other things do you hear from students when you're talking about some of these artifacts? Yeah, they are very confused at times uh, because they just can't imagine what it would be like to be a woman here uh, in the 1940s or 1950s. One of the obvious reasons for having a sign-out sheet and all that is to control women's sex lives. And, you know, <laughs> they're like, what? <laughs> why Why do they care, you know? And it's uh, this brings up the, uh, the whole concept of in loco parentis. Yes. Prior to the 1970s, students here under the age of 21 were considered minors. They were considered children. So the university was in the place of the parent. You know, your parents would want to protect you if, if you were a woman. Yeah, you know, they'd want to protect you and make sure that, you know, you, you didn't get into trouble. Did they have chaperones? No, but you had to state who you went out with. Okay. You so had, they, you, yeah, it was very, very clear. It's like who you were going out with on the sign-out sheet. We have one sign-out sheet that's very interesting. It's that of Adele Corey. That was her name at the time. And uh, she went out with a guy named Bob Graham a lot. And eventually she married Bob Graham and eventually became the first lady of Florida. But we have Adele's sign-out sheet. And there it is, Bob Graham, Bob Graham. Bob Graham. <laughs> 
Does Adele Graham know? Did she know that you've got this? Oh, of course she donated. She donated. Okay, great. No, I was uh, I was down in Miami Lakes uh, visiting them, and I saw that she still had this. Please give this to the you know the archives. You know this is wonderful, and she didn't hesitate. We we actually have had women who refuse to give us their their sign out sheets. They have them, but they they keep them because it's a personal memento of their of their lives while they were here. And I guess in some ways a, a diary of times. Diary, a very diary in a way, and a very personal. And history can be a sensitive subject at times. And what's your approach been to creating a a historical record while being mindful of politics and sensitivities? Because we're seeing things through the lens of today, but Mm -hmm. we know that in the future, they'll be viewed a different way, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's an interesting question. Uh, First of all, we don't actually create the records. Somebody else creates the records, and we simply take them in describe them and make them available to researchers. But in another sense, we do create the record because we are are the gatekeepers. We are the ones who have to select which records get kept and which ones end up in the dumpster. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very uh, significant and weighty responsibility. And we're very much cognizant of the biases that exist in a records creation some people create records. Some people don't create records. Uh, the university president creates a lot of records. The provost creates even more records. But the person who cleans the bathrooms doesn't create any records. And we're very mindful of that. And we have been for a number of years. And uh, we try to come up with ways to, you know, to fill the gaps of, uh, uh, of uh, selecting records that uh, previous archivists may not have deemed worthy of maintaining. But there's only so much you can do. We, don't, we can't create records. Uh, oral history uh, fills the gaps uh, a lot, but we're, we're not oral historians. We're archivists. We deal with paper records. We deal with, with the actual records that are created at the time. Uh, oral history is a different thing, but it's very important. It also has its own biases as well. People's memories are faulty. Uh, of course they <laughs> yeah. are, and they're seen through one person's perspective one, quite One person's often. perspective many years after the fact in some cases. Archivists also have an ethical responsibility to make sure that the records are accurate, uh, that you know that we're keeping an accurate record, and that, that all the information is uh, available to researchers, to, to everyone, including information that might make some people feel uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, we hear a lot about that today. You know, people feel uncomfortable. They don't want to talk about the past. Well, that's what we do. This is, we, we deal with the past. And I'm, I'm not sympathetic to people who are uncomfortable with the past. It exists and we have to deal with the past. I'm, I'm the, uh, the son of a, of a German Jew who escaped the Holocaust. Many of her friends didn't. Many of her relatives didn't. And I appreciate what Germany has done in the last 20 years in terms of uh, talking about the past and revisiting the past and coming to, you know, to grips with uh, what happened during World War II. You know, at first they didn't, and nobody wanted to talk about it. It was like, oh, that's the past. Yes, we acknowledge these horrible things happen, but move on. Let's move on. Yes, let's move on, and we can't do that. Right. In many ways, the past is the greatest teacher that we have. I think so. Yes. So you've written on a variety of subjects related to the university's history. Are there some topics that really stand out that you can share with us today? Sure. But first of all, I've always approached uh, my research, regardless of whether it was uh, aimed at a general audience or uh, whether it was aimed at just simply the people in the Gator Nation. I've always approached it with the attitude that this is serious scholarship. And I've written 
some materials, uh, some on some sub subjects that uh, would only be of interest to someone in the Gator Nation, and I've written other things that would be of more general interest or interest to other historians. And in all cases, I've tried to be somewhat of a myth myth buster. We have a lot of stories at this institution. Every institution does. Right. Okay, but we have a lot of stories about our origins and the origins of this and that. And I always try to confront those stories and challenge them and see what the see if the archival record validates those stories or if it invalidates those stories. I'll give you an example. I've written extensively on the origins of the Gator nickname. And the reason for that is that a number of years ago, I was going through the archives, wasn't looking for anything related to the Gator nickname, but I happened to find an explanation for why we're called the Gators. And the reason why that was interesting is because we already had a story, more or less official, and this wasn't it. There's another story. So, so I said, okay, well, this is interesting. Now I have two stories. Which one is the valid story? Which one is, you know, not? And I did a lot of research and I came away with the conclusion that the story that I found was in fact the real story of the origins of the Gator nickname. And I was writing an article on that. And, and then all of a sudden I found a third explanation. <laughs> So just, you know, at, at the end, you know, I ended up doing what historians do. I said, well, you don't, we can't tell you exactly why we're called the Gators. There are various explanations for why were they were the Gators. And that's that's a pitfall of archival research and historical research is that, you know, we, you know, we look for that definitive answer. We look for that smoking gun. We, we don't find it. But we, you know, we hope to come with some kind of consensus and even a an overwhelming consensus, but at the end of the day, you're still left with questions and room for debate and other interpretations. So. Can you share with us just a touch of those three stories? Oh, sure. The, the first story involved Philip Miller, who had a store down in, in downtown uh, Gainesville, and he sold a number of things to students, uh, including pennants. And according to the story, he was in Virginia with uh, visiting his son, uh, who was at the University of Virginia. And they went to a, a manufacturer of pennants, and uh, they ordered pennants for the store. And the manufacturer asked, uh, what were the school colors, first of all? And they said orange and blue. And then they said, well, what were the, what's the mascot do you want to put on the pennants? And uh, they said, we don't have one. So they came up with one, and that's the origins of the name. Well, it turns out to be not the case. That is, those pennants, early pennants, I've never seen an early pennant with a gator on it. The second story involved the captain of the 1911 football team, whose nickname was Bo Gator, which is Southern Brother Gator, Neil Bo Gator Storter. And someone said that he was the origin of the Gator nickname. Wow. But he denied it. <laughs> okay. And he came up with the third explanation, which I'm not going to get into because we've already gotten into the weeds in this. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating, you know, it's, it's one of those things. Fascinating to people in the Gator Nation, I guess, but uh, other people may not find it so interesting. Well, one more Gator Nation question, though, because you did mention the school colors. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, they weren't always orange and blue. And that may have been the mistake that Austin Miller, the son, made when he told the story 40 years after the fact. Yeah, the school colors in 1907, when this supposedly happened, were probably blue and gold, uh, not orange and blue. So what they may have done inadvertently is influence the choice of colors. And that may have been what he was, why he was confused about it. But yeah, uh, they were blue and gold. At least uh, most people thought they were blue and gold, but some people thought the other color was orange or yellow. And eventually we decided 
on orange. Oh, we know what we are now. We, we know what we are now. We're blue and orange and we're gators, yes. There you go. Uh, what about some other fun stories or interesting stories from the past that might surprise people? Oh, sure. One I always come back to is the, uh, the fact that the University of Florida was one time in Lake City. Most people don't know that. And it's kind of it's one of those things. It's like, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, why would the state of Florida move its university from one place to another, especially only 45 miles south? We're the only state in modern history to have done that. And it's it had to be something really dramatic for that to, for that to happen. And the bottom line is that there have been a lot of problems in Lake City. And when the opportunity came to move the university after the passage of the Buckman Act of 1905, there were people who jumped on it and said, yes, the situation on Lake City had always been very bad. And they were all the, the people in Lake not all the people, but the, the leading citizens of Lake City were all constantly interfering in the affairs of the university. So they said, hmm, <laughs> let's, go. Let's, let's go to someplace else where they'd be more appreciative. And now we're in Gainesville. And water played a part in that? Well, that's what some people, that's another story. Okay. That's one of those stories, of stories about, you know. Uh, the University of Florida came to Gainesville because of free water. It certainly probably was a factor, but mo mostly it was about just getting out of uh, Lake City. And the only other city that offered you know, the opportunity was Gainesville. Gainesville fought very hard to have the university come here. They were disappointed because the Buckman Act had abolished the East Florida Seminary, one of several schools that, have been, that were abolished uh, by the act. So they were putting up a fight and, uh, yeah. Well, no doubt there are some incredible items in the archive and I know this might be asking you to pick a favourite child, but do you have a favourite <laughs> item in the archive? Well, I've talked about some of the things that, I, that, that have always, you know, intrigued me. But, you know, it's, it's amazing. You know, 40 years, uh, almost 40 years in, uh, as an archivist and I still enjoy reading other people's mail. And uh, <laughs> so I, I've been reading a lot of mail from the early presidents. Albert Murphy and Andrew Sled. Uh, Andrew Sled was our first president. And Albert Murphy was our second president. And I've done a lot of research on the uh, the origins of public uh, higher education in Florida. And I've gotten to know those two men rather well. And I feel like if if, if either one of them showed up on the streets tomorrow, I'd be able to have a an intelligent, great conversation with them. And you know. Tell them how much I appreciate the, their efforts and all that. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I still enjoy just reading other people's mail. But I have worked with a lot of different types of records over the years. Like I mentioned audiovisual materials. A lot of those audiovisual materials came from this very studio in WUFT, including a lot of news clips, but even B, you know, B roll and that kind of thing. You know, the, the the stuff that the studio rejected, but we still have all the kind of outtakes and stuff like that. Another one of my favorites are uh, the episodes of Conversation. It was a WUFT television interview uh, format program, very similar to this, <laughs> that was done by Mike Gannon. And we have about a third of the episodes that he did, and we've been able to preserve them. And they're fascinating. They're just, you know, various people who came through campus, but also just uh, interviews with administrators and other people who had an influence on the university. Any other quirky kind of objects that you've got there that really stand out to you? Oh, a few. Uh, one that's rather unusual is something that actually probably belongs in the Florida State University rather than here. In 1903, the University of Florida in Lake City decided to become an all-male institution, and so the women left. And one of those women was this woman named Ida Morgan, and her daughter ended up giving, uh, giving us a number of things 
that had belonged to her from both institutions. And one of them is this whiskey glass, which is a commemoration of a football game played between the Florida State College in Tallahassee before it became the State College for Women and the University of Florida in Lake City. Florida State actually won the game. <laughs> and it's, it's in garnet and gold, uh, their school colors, uh, but we have it. Uh, and by the way, the Florida State does not have the type of archives that we have, in large part because no one's thought to keep you know, materials, whereas we've always had people like Sam Proctor, I mentioned him earlier, who in addition to uh, being the university historian, he was the person who created the archives back in the early 1950s. Another person that preceded me was Carlos Summers, yeah, who was the first, one of the first professional archivist. There were two that preceded her, but they were very here only for a short amount of time. Carlisle, on the other hand, uh, stayed here for about uh, 15 years, and she was the person who hired me, so I can never <laughs> thank her too much for that. But uh, she really put the archives on a professional road. I was going to ask you about that because we're, we're such an enormous place and there are so many things being generated on a, a daily basis. How do you go about making the need or the importance of archiving, how do you make people aware of that so that things don't end up in the dumpster before you have a chance to realise that or to look at it and ascertain whether or not it belongs in the archives? It is a challenge. It's a challenge convincing administrators and everyone else that uh, the archives plays an important role and needs to be funded. It's it's difficult to get the word out to people. It includes a records management program, um, which again, Carla, had influenced the creation of the records management program. We have a records manager now, and uh, that's part of her responsibility. Uh, and it's also the responsibility of the current university archivist is to go out and tell people, you know, yes, we definitely want this material. Don't throw it away. So much of what we create today is electronic. Mm. I thank God I never had, <laughs> I didn't have to deal with electronic records too much. Uh, I'm more than content to let uh, the next generation of archivists deal with those issues. But that is a major, they don't end up in the dumpster anymore. They end up in your- uh, In the trash tr file. In the trash file, yeah, yeah. So it's- uh, Totally different world. Well, you will retire from UF this summer after having made a, an incredibly tangible contribution to the university. What are you most proud of? Are there, is it one thing or a, no, I'm sure a collection? No, there's no one thing that I'm proud of, I, but I'm proud that you know I got to follow people like Sam Proctor and Carlos Summers and uh, carry on the tradition. And uh, then it's, I'm very proud of the fact that the things that I've done will endure. That's one of the things, great satisfactions of being an archivist, whether you work on a collection for a year or a month or a week, at the, at the end of that time period, you've got the collection ready, it's available to researchers, and you feel like you've accomplished something. And I, I take great pride in having done that, and, and I take great pride in knowing that it will continue, and that people will follow me to continue the work. Well, Carl, thank you for joining us today and thank you for all you've done for the University of Florida in preserving that history and those stories that are so much a part of us today. Thank you very much and it's been a great pleasure. Listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of From Florida. I hope you'll tune in next week. I'm your host, Nikki Brown. Our executive producer is Brooke Adams and our technical producer is James Sullivan.